like you to listen to something uh, from the Bible and uh, just listen carefully. And I guess I could say, think about whether you agree or not, but that would be kind of silly in a place like this. And it's a very agreeable statement. Just listen to these simple words. For us Christians, for us, there is one Lord Jesus Christ. For us, there is one Lord Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. But I just want you to focus your attention to begin this morning with that statement. For us, there is one Lord, comma, Jesus Christ. For us, there is one Lord, capital L, comma, Jesus Christ. That's just a common Christian confession. Everyone in this room who professes faith in Christ no doubt would say, that's right. For me, that's true. For us, that's true. There's nothing radical about it. There's nothing extraordinary about it. It's very straightforward. Christians have always said, for us, there is one Lord, comma, Jesus Christ. It's a great statement for Christians to say, to confess, to profess, to announce, to cling to. But it actually is radical. It's actually a huge big deal. It's actually extraordinary to say, for us, for us Christians, there is one Lord, comma, Jesus Christ. Now why would that be radical? That would be radical, it was radical in the first century. It could be radical now, even though we're used to saying it, but it's radical if you say there's only one Lord, you're saying, on face value, at least at first, first blush, first glance, there is only one authority in your life. And the only one authority in your life is Jesus Christ. If you hear that the wrong way, as an unbeliever, you think, oh, those Christians, they're anti-authority. They're anti-government. They're anti-bosses. They're anti-civility, they're anti-social structure, they're anarchists. So if you hear it a certain way, that's how it sounds. And that is something that first century Christians had to deal with. They want to overthrow the government because they only believe in one Lord, comma, Jesus Christ. Now we're sitting here saying, no, no, that's not the case. But even some Christians in the first century struggled with that reality. I've only got one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to pay any respect to any other authorities. Because after all, He is the Lord of Lords. He's Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a true statement. He is the Lord. But it's a true statement used wrongly to say there are no other authorities in our lives. Christians get this wrong sometimes. And unbelievers get this wrong sometimes regarding Christianity. It's a first century problem. It's not as big of a problem, I don't think, for us. But we can still fall into that kind of problem. First Peter addresses this kind of issue. Last time we talked about the government and how Christians are to submit to the governing authorities insofar as we can because those authorities are established by God. They are legitimate lords. Maybe for clarity's sake, let's call them lowercase l lords. 
Um, today we're going to be talking about work life. And so if, we, if you have a boss or someone who's in authority over you in one way or another, uh, they're a legitimate Lord in your life, but it's lowercase l Lord. And we would want to serve them because we know about the Lord of Lords, uppercase L, the Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter is a great little book helping us to, to, to try to live our lives in this in-between time. So in between uh, the fact that right now we believe in Jesus and we belong to Him and we have Christ and all of the benefits associated with trusting in Christ, and they're ours, and yet until He returns, we're not going to fully enjoy them, we're not going to fully experience them. Uh, when it comes to the here and now, we have many lords in our life. Okay? When he comes back, they'll all be gone, right? And now we'll only have, even on a practical level, one Lord. In the in-between time, we have one ultimate Lord, but even he tells us that we're to respect authority, so we have many lowercase l lords. It's kind of complicated. It's complicated to live in the in-between time. First uh, Peter is trying to help us live in the in-between time. Remember in chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm going to keep running back to it. It's like our touchstone where we have to go back to again and again and again to understand the book. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it, he, he calls Christians elect. And that's loaded, 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 loaded. Exiles. That's pretty loaded as well. It's, it's shorthand, and we're learning throughout the whole book what that's about, but it's shorthand for us Christians in the in-between time. We're elect. That means we, uh, shorthand, we're Christians. We're united to Christ. We have all of the great blessings. First uh, Peter talks about how we uh, have received an inheritance. We belong to the royal family. It's an eternal inheritance. It won't perish. It can't be stolen. It can't fade away. Uh, we're guaranteed resurrection. We're guaranteed glorification. Perfect bodies, perfect lives that last forever. We just heard the, uh, the music group singing about it. We'll talk more about it today. Elect all of those things are ours. They're done, secure, taken care of. But we're exiles. So, so we're not experiencing life in the new Jerusalem. We're not experiencing life in, in if, you, if you want to call it heaven. We're not experiencing those things. And, and it's hard to live in the here and now. And First Peter talks about suffering in the here and now. With me so far? I'm going to use a couple, big, uh, a couple labels that, that sound big, but they're simple. And I've used them before on a Sunday morning in our study in First Peter. But I'm going to do it again because I want you to grasp the categories. There are two big mistakes that Christians make. First Peter helps us to correct both of the mistakes. Okay, so to, to, to drop some theological knowledge on you, um, Christians make the mistake of having an over-realized eschatology. Man, where can you go and hear that on a Sunday morning? Eschatology is a study of the end, dealing with the end. So Christ's return would have to do with eschatology, eschatos, the eschaton, the return, the coming of Christ. Okay? Some Christians struggle with, and we might all at times struggle with, and, and false teachers utilize these strongly at times, an over-realized eschatology. In other words, the Bible says we have the great inheritance, and so we think that that means there's no suffering in the here and now. 
We think we, ha- we belong to, we have the Lord, capital L, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and He's our elder brother and we're in the family because of Him. We, we, if we have an over-realized view, an over-realized eschatology in the here and now, we might not ha- respect any authorities. Because I only have one Lord. Who do you think you are? Kind of thing. Uh, an over-realized eschatology would, would be, um, you, you think because Christ was raised for you and guarantees your resurrection and by His stripes you are healed. And we're going to talk about that this morning and it's a great and awesome promise. But if you have an over-realized eschatology like some of the big hairdos on television, who am I to talk? My mom had like the biggest hairdo on planet Earth. But anyway, we would say to her, would she come to church, big hair alert. Uh, anyway, but she wasn't on television with an over-realized eschatology. Anyway, that you should be happy, wealth, healthy, and wise in the here and now. It's over-realized. That's, it, the, the, there's not a place for the suffering. And Peter's stressing the suffering in the here and now. We're going to get to the text, I promise. But no Lord but the Lord Jesus in the here and now. It would make me a bad citizen. It would make me a bad employee. It would make me a bad family person. Bad church member. Then the other error is an under-realized eschatology. And that would be, I'm suffering, I'm suffering, and everything's in the balance. Everything is, in, uh, 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 is up in the air, and, and I might have the inheritance, I might not have the inheritance, and I might lose the inheritance, and oh no, stress, everything. I'm a total stress basket person. Underrealized view of the end. No, he's coming back. And in chapter 1, we learned that we, we are heirs. The inheritance is ours. I love the language he used. It's protected in heaven for us. It's protected for you. So what we're trying to do in First Peter is learn from Peter, we're exiles. This is not heaven, so it shouldn't feel like heaven. But at the same time, heaven is sure and absolute and locked in with tractor beam certainty kind of thing. So in the here and now, though we only have one ultimate Lord, we're not anti-government, we're not anti-bosses, we're not anti-authority, we're not anti-roles. And First Peter's trying to help us sort that out right now. And today we're going to talk about work. We're talking about jobs. We're going to talk about your responsibility. Unless you're retired, then you're free and clear. Pray for the rest of us. Um, But those who you're under when it comes to you earning a wage, let's say. And they really should be respected as a legitimate, I'm going to call them lowercase l, Lord. You should be a good worker, not a bad worker. Fair enough? Long introduction. Wow. Wow. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. And there's a command, a simple command, followed by rationale or explanation. So there's not really a necessary outline. He's going to give a command, and then he's going to explain himself on a couple of different levels. Uh, and like every good preacher worth their salt, he's going to go off on a gospel tangent and talk about how great Jesus is, which is intentional to help keep you motivated to be a good worker. Because you belong to Christ. 
Ready? Can't wait. I like these kinds of sermons because it's Christ-exalting, awesome, great, lofty kind of stuff. And they also, this, this is something we really need. Um, okay, chapter 2, verse 18. Look there with me if you would. It says, Servants, servants, be subject or submit to is the idea in translation. Your translation could say that. Servants, be subject, align yourself under to your masters with all respect. Be subject to your masters with all respect. He doesn't use the general word for servant. Um, that's used in chapter 2, verse 16. We're servants of God. Uh, you could translate it slaves of God. But we have a good master, by the way. He uses a more particular word here, and he uses the word for house servant. A house servant. I think he's using it here, focusing on it, because many, many people uh, who he's writing to would have been house servants. Remember, we're dealing with a very, very different kind of culture, different kind of society. But in principle, we, we can understand. I'm going to do what every preacher has been doing ever since. Whatever culture they're in, they can say, we can contextualize this and help you in your place of wherever you earn a living or you, wherever you maintain your earnings so that you can live a life. Okay? So it's different from just you. I mean, they, they didn't have Walmarts, okay? Um, or <laughs> wherever you happen to work. Uh, it's different, but we understand the reality. We understand the concepts I don't know any house servants. My, my grandmother, my grandma Anderson, was a housekeeper. Um, that's as close as I've ever met to a house servant. But he uses the word for house, oikos, house. These are people who would have probably lived as part of the family, maybe in a different building, maybe in the same building, but they would have been the servants of the house and they would have been under the authority and they wouldn't have lived otherwise. But I'm going to apply it to you who have bosses, different kind of social structure, because that's what we do. If your boss were a Christian, or if your boss is a Christian, you're spiritual equals. If your boss is not a Christian, you're not spiritual equals. As a matter of fact, you're an heir to the kingdom of God, and they have nothing. In that sense, you're superior to them, and that could create a conflict in the way you even think about things. Okay? Now, this would be everyone in this room has a boss story, I'm sure, even those of you, of you who are retired. You might have more boss stories than the rest of us. Maybe it helps you now to think of a bad boss scenario. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just helping you to be more bitter. I don't know. But we're going to get into you're to be subject to the one over you in your place of employment. We haven't even gotten to them being bad yet, but I, we're going to get there. For now, we're supposed to respect those who are over us. We're to be good workers, not bad workers. I, one of my bosses was, I watched him be taken away in handcuffs. And he wasn't even my worst boss. Had some doozies. Be subject. There will come a day when you don't have to be subject to anyone other than the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But in the here and now, we have many lowercase l lords. Christians are to respect their authority, even if they're not greatly respected. 
How about verse 18 where it goes on to say, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Not only to the good bosses, but also to the bad bosses who are unjust. You could translate that word unfair. They're unrighteous. That's probably really important in our culture because right now, so oftentimes, we say something's unfair that actually is fair. So when we're like raising a whole generation of people who say things aren't fair that actually are fair, we probably really need to hear this because we have a lot of people who think everything's unfair. He means actually unfair. But when you have a job and you have someone over you in that business or whatever it happens to be where you're working, military, wherever it is, someone who's over you, you're supposed to be subject to them. Christians understand authority. They're supposed to understand authority. And the ultimate authority is telling us through his apostle, you should respect that authority even when they're not fair. I don't like to hear this. You don't like to hear this. And it's kind of, in one sense, right that we don't like to hear it because it's not right. To be unfair is not right. But unless you were just born yesterday, you'll, you'll have jobs and have had jobs where you're not treated fairly. There's injustice that goes on in the place of employment. It's just part of the deal. And Christians are being equipped today and have been equipped to try to think about it a different way. And he's even going to use that kind of language. So I'm trying to encourage you as a fellow Christian, I'm trying to encourage you as a pastor to have a different kind of mindset, a different kind of of thinking. And he's going to motivate you for this. But for now, we have to realize, even when it's not so good, we're called to do this. Now let's move to some explanation, okay? Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful, ah, see, there's the thinking. I really wanted you to see that. When mindful, it's a mindset. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly or unfairly or unrighteously. So think about the fact that you, if you're a Christian, you're a grace expert. All Christians are grace experts because you've received so much of it. Right? You, you, you didn't deserve to be saved. You didn't deserve to be forgiven. You didn't deserve to receive this great inheritance. And yet you've received it. That's grace. You know so much about grace, it's not even funny. And so having been a great recipient of grace, you can deal with people who act unrighteously because you yourself acted unrighteously and God treated you with giving you something you didn't earn. And so you're an expert. It's harder to apply, I understand. But he's reasoning with you. Here's how you have to think. Here's the mindset. Okay, boss so-and-so is a real piece of work. Boss so-and-so, even though I'm doing my job, is yelling at me as I'm digging a ditch of all kind of dumb jobs I've ever had, making a living digging a ditch, and you're yelling obscenities at me while I'm in the ditch, you piece of work. Oh, we're not going to talk about bad bosses. Well, that was theoretical. It had nothing to do with any of my bosses. 
as a Christian, I'm a grace expert because I've received so much grace from God. So I've got to have the mindset. This is what God wants me to do. God wants me to act a certain way, and I can because I understand, but it really does involve a kind of mindset. And I'm going to forget this, by the way. That's why we need the reminder. And I'm reminding you. I think everyone in this room, by and large, probably already understands the concept. But we forget so quickly. Mindful of God, it's a mindset. It doesn't mean the sorrow isn't real. It doesn't mean the difficulty isn't real. It doesn't mean any of that. In fact, we're suffering unfairly, unjustly. And that would be painful and call for endurance. But it's a good word for us to hear. Let's keep going to verse 20. It says in verse 20, what, For what credit is it? What benefit is the idea? What benefit is it? When you sin, oh, and by the way, what credit is it? I mean, the, the idea is Christians, what benefit? Christians want to honor God. Christians want to do the right thing. So, so what, what credit is it if when you sin, that's an unrighteous act, and are beaten for it, you, are in, you endure? Again, I'm glad I don't live in that social structure where that happens, but you understand the concept. When you do the wrong thing and you're treated badly, that's not honoring God. What benefit is that? That's just kind of getting what you deserve. You, you, you did the wrong thing and, and you, were, you, you felt the consequences, we would say. But that, that's not what Christians are supposed to be. Christians are supposed to be those people. Christians are supposed to do the right thing. And then they're supposed to do the right thing even when they're treated wrongly is what he's calling us to do. To live beyond it because of a, a mindset, mindful of God. Amidst the obscenities. Then verse 20 goes on to say, But if when you do good, that's what Christians are seeking to do, that's what we want to do, that's what we're called to do throughout 1 Peter, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. A beneficial thing. The right thing in the sight of God, I think, is how he's using gracious there. It's pleasing. It's pleasing to the Lord. When you do the right thing in subjection to a lesser Lord. Mindset is mindful of God, the Lord. I'm going to do my job and I'm going to do it well. Even when the lesser Lord doesn't give me what I deserve. We could give lots of qualifiers, right? We could say... Let's all be thankful we don't live in this particular culture, in this particular society, and you can quit your job, and we can find another job, and find another profession, and go back to school. I'm thankful for all of those things. I hope you are too. But let's not be too quick to add footnotes and qualifiers. Because wherever you are now, you're called to be subject to that lesser Lord. Exercise your freedom. Go for it. Praise God for that. But regardless, and if you think your job is bad now and you're going to get a better job where you're always treated fairly, that's not right. There's always going to be a challenge. Always. If you just have the mindset, mindful of God, Mindful of God. Now Christians aren't going to look like bad employees who don't understand authority. 
and they're so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. No, and as a matter of fact, he's going to argue the opposite. He wants us to be so heavenly minded about our great Lord, mindful of God, and mindful that no one can ultimately hurt you. We're going to go there. It's going to be awesome. That you can be of great earthly good. So we don't want to have an over-realized eschatology. We don't have an under-realized eschatology. We want to have this kind of hard balance of, man, how is it that I can live as an elect exile? I like some of the Old Testament examples I mentioned now and then of these elect exiles. Daniel is a great one. Not because he was perfect but because he was a believer living in an in-between time. Trusting the Lord to do what's right. Submitting insofar as he could. And being a good worker. Let's go to some further explanation. How about verse 21? By the way, this is about the time when I start getting a little more tired, you know, and maybe I spent more time at the beginning of my sermon than the end of my sermon because Sunday comes so fast every week. And you might be thinking, oh, right about now is when I start getting tired because I know he gets tired and, you know. This isn't that week, okay? There's some really good stuff here that might be the most motivating at all, Okay? If I wrote the Bible, I might put this stuff first. We're all thankful I didn't write the Bible. But there's some great stuff here at the end, so don't miss out on this great stuff. Verse 21 says, For to this you have been called. Now, I love that statement in isolation. Because I want, my, you know, what has God called me to do, right? My calling. I'm looking for my calling in life. My, the, really, what I've been designed and created and recreated for, I finally found my calling. Right? But let's keep it in the context. This is what God has called you to do. You want to know what God has called you to do? Remember, earlier in chapter 2, he talks about this is the will of God. Oh, I want to know God's will. It's kind of the same. This is your calling as an elect exile to be a great worker, even when you're not treated fairly for your great work. It's your calling. Thankfully, it's not your only calling, but it's what you've been called to do. Okay, I want to do a good job with what I've been called to do. By the way, calling and, and election are used oftentimes together in the Bible. I don't think it's any mistake. We're called as elect exiles, and we have a calling. Thankfully, we've been called by God for salvation, but we've also been called to live in the here and now in the in-between time. Then it says in 21, look there, because Christ. Okay, this is our calling because Christ. Christ our Savior, Christ our representative, Christ... Uh, the one to whom we're united by faith. Christ, the one whose name we bear if we're Christians. Because Christ. Oh, this is our calling. Because Christ, keep going there, also suffered for you. And we really need to emphasize that a lot. And Peter does, and we do. For you. Substitution. He did it on your behalf. This is not what you do. This is what He did. Salvation is only because of what He's done. Salvation is not about you following Jesus. The gospel is not follow Jesus. 
The gospel is the good news about what Jesus did. He did this for you. And we really emphasize that around there, around here, around there too, uh, around here, because a lot of times people think the, the gospel is follow Jesus. It's not. But let's not pendulum swing the wrong way. The gospel is he did this for you, all of him, but then Christians do follow Jesus. Not to become Christians, but because they are Christians. And he's going to go there now, okay? So he also, also suffered for you. This is what he did. Leaving you an example. Ah, that's super important. It's not the gospel, but it's an implication. It's an effect. It's a, the outflowing. It's a natural, supernatural byproduct. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. substitute for you, example, follow His steps. And I I almost started writing like this, follow His... Because He uses a word there, it's translated follow in the English text, for tracing. It's what little kids would have... uh, A word used for training little children, for learning their alphabet. You trace over, right? Remember the dotted line kind of paper? Uh, and then they'd have kind of the dotted line A. And you trace, and then you trace, and you trace. And before you know it, you're tracing. And so you're learning how to do it. And now you can write cursive too, boys and girls, right? But here he's using that tracing for Jesus' footsteps. Okay? He's a savior for you, but... As a Savior, He also is an example for you to follow. So we're tracing His footsteps. It's what we've been called to if we're Christians. Christians are to follow. How about verse 22? He committed no sin. You see how He's upholding Christ, right? Because I'm treated unfairly and I'm going to let you have it. Right? He committed no sin. Christ committed no no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. So purity of action, purity even of speech. And in my mind, I think about what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So not only did he have control, he had control uh, through and through. Committed no sin, internally or externally. 23, when he was reviled, and I wrote in my margin, unjustly, because remember he's talking about us being treated unfairly, unjustly. He was reviled unjustly or unrighteously or unfairly. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, I added in my margin, unjustly, because that's what he's talking about here. And he suffered unjustly or unrighteously or unfairly. He did not threaten I wrote in my margin, Matthew twenty six fifty three. He could have called down who knows how many legions of angels and mowed them all down and made Rambo look like a little kindergarten girl. He had the power to do it. Didn't do it. Sorry, all kindergarten girls. I like you. And don't be confused about mowing or Rambo. He did not threaten. If he would have, it wouldn't have been an empty threat. 
He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Fairly, righteously is the word. Okay, this right here, is, is, this is going to be good, okay? I mean, it's all good. Following his footsteps. I belong to him. The inheritance is mine, kept in heaven. You can't take it away from me. And so I am now free to submit to the unsubmittables. Because I'm mindful of God and I've been called to follow Christ. That's, that's good enough, right? I, I, I just earned my week's pay just for preaching this, this so far. But now I'm going to ask for a bonus. We're going to take a second offering at the end. I'm just kidding. Totally kidding. Here's what I don't want you to miss. When I read the end of verse 23, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, I'm right in thinking the bad guys are going to get theirs because nothing goes unseen by God. And that kind of makes me feel good right? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, okay? I, I think that way. I think it's, it's right to think that way. So I don't have to take matters into my own hands because I'm entrusting myself, as Jesus did, to the one who judges justly. Righteousness will win in the end. But I also want you to see it another way. To be Christ-like is to be continually entrusting ourselves to Him who judges justly. I think it also has to do with resurrection and glorification. We're going to see that. When, here's a, I want want this to make sense. I'm overthinking it. When did God pronounce officially Jesus as righteous, just? The official pronouncement on display for everyone to see, climactic, significant, my son Jesus, I've declared him to be righteous or just or perfect in every way, shape, or form. When did he do that? He did that at the resurrection. At the resurrection, Jesus was officially declared perfect. He was, he was perfect before, don't get me wrong. He was officially declared as the one who is perfectly righteous in every way, shape, or form. We know this because of Psalm 2. We know this because of Romans 1. We know this because of lots of places in Scripture. But I think that's something we should keep in our minds. Um, When Jesus was raised from the dead, that was Jesus' justification. He was declared righteous because He was righteous. Think with me, and we've talked about this before, but some of you are new. The wages of sin is what? Is death. If Jesus would have ever sinned, he would have stayed what? He would have stayed dead. 
But because Jesus Christ never sinned, in fact, he always did everything right and righteous, the grave could not hold him. God's official pronouncement, my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is indeed and always was righteous, raised from the dead. There's the official verdict. Resurrection. So, I think what Peter's getting at even for Jesus, he could, he could keep on entrusting himself to the Father because he knows that the Father judges justly. He could keep on entrusting himself to the Father because he knew that he would never, ever, 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 ever stay dead no matter what they did to him. No matter what, no matter what, no matter what, no matter what, he would be resurrected and glorified. We're not going to take the time to go there, but you could go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where it talks about Christ being vindicated at his his resurrection. It's the word for justified at his resurrection. I think this becomes so important because if you're a believer in Christ, you're united to Christ. And his vindication, his justification, his officially being declared righteous at his resurrection is guaranteed that you too will be resurrected because you've trusted in him and you've received Christ and all of his benefits. So practically speaking, when your life is hard in the here and now, and sometimes could be really, 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 really hard, you can still do the right thing. You can still seek to be mindful of God amidst the bad things, even if it meant your life, because you're going to be walking in Christ's footsteps, continuing to entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. And the one who judges justly has promised to raise you from the dead and glorify you. So awesome, I can't believe it! See, that's where boldness comes from. I'm entrusting myself to him who judges justly. Pat Abendroth, a believer in Jesus Christ, cannot stay dead. And this isn't anything new, by the way. Old Christian writers write about this, but we've kind of lost sight of it in more recent days. I went to seminary and never heard about vindication. So it's no wonder we don't, we don't know about this. Christ's justification. It's a guarantee of our resurrection. So let me encourage you to be the kind of person who traces Christ's footsteps as a believer in Christ, mindful of God, he's the one who you can constantly entrust yourself to because he judges justly. Now, if you're not a Christian, that's not good news. But if you are, as sure as the tomb is empty, you're going to be resurrected. So awesome. So awesome. Now let's finish up. How about verse 24? He himself bore our sins. So again, substitution, right? Gospel. In his body on the tree. It's what he did. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So sin is lawlessness. Righteousness is, is, is obeying, doing the right thing. So, so we died to lawlessness. And now we're able to live to righteousness. We can do the right thing. We can love God. We can love our neighbor, even sinful neighbors. 
So my boss might be a real sinful neighbor, but now I've died to sin and I live to righteousness. I'm fully empowered to be able to do this because of Christ. Then let's keep going. Look there, by his wounds, by Christ's wounds, you have been healed. <laughs> That's from Isaiah 53, right? He's borrowing it out from Isaiah 53. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now, now Peter jumps to the not yet. Because it's an already certainty. Right? Because Christ has done this, secured this, His work is already done in Isaiah 53. That's why Isaiah 53 speaks of it in the past tense. By His wounds you are healed. And you say, I'm an exile. I'm not healed. Are you crazy? Peter, you were talking about suffering. Yeah, Peter's not confused. He keeps reminding us of the, the elect reality. See? By his wounds you are healed. Elect reality. He already talked about the suffering. That's the (laughs) exile reality. But I can get through the exile times because I know about the elect times and my healing is already done. See, the charismatics get this all wrong. Right? I I mean, I remember going going to see John Wimber who used to be like the biggest name in charismaticism. Uh, I think a founder of the Vineyard Movement, where Vineyard Music comes from. And he had some kind of throat cancer. It was super sad. He sat there in his wheelchair at the main um, Vineyard Church in Southern California, and he could hardly speak. And he had to keep spraying his mouth with this stuff. And it was super sad. And it was terrible marketing for the charismatic movement. If you're a good Christian, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. He died not much longer after that. That is not what Isaiah 53 is promising you. That is not what 1 Peter chapter 2 is promising you. That's an over-realized eschatology. I'm not going to swing the other way and have an under-realized eschatology and say, you know what, live it up, this is all you get. No, by His stripes you are healed. It's a certainty kept in heaven, chapter 1, for you. I believe in healing. (laughs) I just don't pray for my healing to come quickly. You know why? Because I'm praying for my death. (laughs) I'm still kind of liking some stuff on earth. (laughs) but the day will come. It's certain. Okay, I'm having too much fun. I'll confess. Verse 25 says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Safety. You're safe. You're safe. He's the pastor. He's the shepherd. He's going to make sure you're okay. He's going to protect you. He's going to defend you. And that's who you are in Christ. You can submit to even the biggest jerk of a boss. Even if they physically harm you in the first century at least. Or in a different culture. I end with a great quote from John Flavel. um, 17th century British preacher who was kicked out of at least one of his churches officially by the, the governing authorities. He said this, When we Christians are abused and wronged, It is hard to keep the heart from revengeful motions. To keep it meekly. To make it, he says, meekly 
and quietly commit the cause to Him that judges righteously. So meekly and quietly commit the cause to Him who judges righteously. They'll get theirs. I'll get mine. Meekly, humbly, quietly, mindful of godly, if I can put words in Flavel's mouth, entrust yourself to the one who judges righteously. And it'll be okay. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a a dear, dear time in your word here at Omaha Bible Church this morning. Please use your word by the power of the Spirit with encouragement from the church for us to be good workers who are faithful workers who understand lordship because we have the ultimate Lord in the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.